Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of July 18th from youth pastor Alan Johnston. Hope you guys are doing well. Good morning. Hope you guys have had a good week. This has been, to say it mildly, a doozy of a week for me. (laughs) We had a hot water heater burst here at the church. I walked in to water in the hallway and in two of the offices on Tuesday. We had a water leak in our driveway that we had to get a plumber come out and fix on Friday. Bradley's car had an oil leak, had to take it in. This is after my car's been out of commission for about a month, so we were down to one car. Tried to get my car in the shop, couldn't make it that far, pulled over at Jason Harness's shop, tried to get it back to my house, and couldn't get it more than about a quarter of a mile from Jason's place and had to get towed. Greg and and Jordan Smith came and helped me with that. So that's the kind of week that this has been. And that's in the midst of being the only one in the office, just coming back from Kansas City, about to go to church camp, busy summer, a lot of stuff going on this week, a lot of stuff I needed to do. Andrew had his final baseball games. I had the sermon to prepare. I had core class to prepare for, all this stuff going on. I don't share all that to go, oh, poor pitiful Alan. I share all that to say each of those things could become a very big excuse, right? I mean, those are really, each of them individually could be like throw your whole week off type events. And all of that happened this week. How many of you would say you're a pretty good excuse maker? Be honest. (laughs) All right, a few honest people. We, We tend to be really good at making excuses about a lot of different things in our lives, spiritually and otherwise. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I titled this message, What's Your Excuse? We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 if you want to turn over there. There was a church I read about that had a no-excuse Sunday. Churches a lot of times have people with a lot of different excuses, just to be real with you, right? So they had a no-excuse Sunday to make it possible for everybody to be able to attend church. They had cots for those who wanted to sleep in. They had lounge chairs for those who thought the seats were too hard. They had eye drops for those who stayed up too late the night before and their eyes were tired and dry. They had blankets for those who thought it was too cold and fans for those who thought it was too hot, which we get both almost every Sunday in here. They tried to cover just about every excuse that they could think of. And on this particular Sunday, a husband and wife got up that morning for church. They were members of the church. They woke up early and the wife noticed that the husband was not really getting ready for church. And so she came in and she said, what's going on? And he said, I don't want to go because it's too cold and nobody likes me and I really just don't want to go. And the wife replied, well, the congregation is warm. There's a few people that like you. And besides, you're the pastor. Get up and get dressed. (laughs) This morning I want to talk to you guys about excuses and how we tend to use excuses and what those excuses can do countering what God wants to do in our lives. In Exodus chapter 3 and 4, it's kind of a make-or-break point for Moses in his life. He has to make a choice. Am I going to return to shepherding what he's known for many years, or am I going to step out in faith for God's calling and the huge task that God was leading him to? Moses' background is that of a Hebrew boy raised by Egyptian royalty, saved from death by the Egyptian royalty by Pharaoh's daughter. He was rescued when Pharaoh wanted to kill all the baby boys, and Pharaoh's daughter raised him as if she was his own son. But then he also killed a man and fled and spent years 
shepherding and wandering sort of in the wilderness. And here in Exodus 3 and 4, he's being called by God to be a tool for the deliverance of God's people from oppression. And at first, he's very reluctant, and he makes excuse after excuse as to why he's not the man for the job. So Exodus chapter 3, I'm going to read part of chapter 3 and part of chapter 4. 7 through 15 in chapter 3 starts here, and this is after God has appeared in the burning bush, and Moses is curious because obviously the bush is burning, or the bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. <clears throat> and Moses goes over to look, and when he goes over to look, God calls him out. And so here's what God says. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from, the land that is a, from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go, I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Excuse number one. He answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? Excuse number two. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. We're going to skip over to chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Moses answered, what if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say the Lord did not appear to you? Excuse number 3. The Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Throw it on the ground, he said. So Moses threw it on the ground. It became a snake and he ran from it. I would too. The Lord told Moses, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. This will take place, he continued, so that they will believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. In addition, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was diseased, resembling snow. Put your hand back inside your cloak, he said. So he put his hand back inside the cloak. When he took it out, it had again become like the rest of his skin. If they will not believe you and will not respond to the evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the second sign. If they don't believe even these two signs or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. But Moses replied to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, either in the past or recently since you have been speaking to your servant, because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. Excuse number four. The Lord said to him, Who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. Moses said, Please, Lord, send someone else. Excuse number five. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, Isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and also he is on his way now to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will serve as a mouth for you, and you will serve as God to him. And take this staff in your hand that you will perform the signs with. Father, I pray this morning that we would see the ways that our excuses counter what you want to do in our lives, and that, God, we would surrender and we would let you do what you want to do and realize that it's about you and not about us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Moses 
that I counted gave five excuses. And I want to talk about three things that those excuses can do in our lives. And I want to talk about, I want to talk about those three things. And then I want to ask a question kind of at the end to sort of challenge us to let go of those things that are holding us back. So the first thing that our excuses can do is they can change the focus from God to me. Our excuses can change the focus from God to me. Moses is unsure of his abilities, and so he starts to play the what-if game. We do that a lot of times, right? What if this? What if that? What if this? What if that? And a lot of times we take it down all the farthest, craziest paths that they could possibly go. Have you ever done that? You ever play the what-if game with God? We all do that, right? I don't know how. I didn't understand. I couldn't find the right tools. I threw out my back bowling. I have a doctor's appointment. There's been a death in the family. The hazmat crew is here and won't let me out of the house. That one's kind of silly. I have a relative coming in and I need to pick them up at the airport. We tend to use all kinds of excuses in our lives. And we do it spiritually as well. We do it in our journey with Christ as well. Excuses to not obey God's voice. It's the preacher's job. It's not my gift. I don't really have time. I've already served. Let somebody else do it. I'm too old. I'm too young. All kinds of excuses. Someone once said this, excuses are tools of the incompetent, and those who specialize in them seldom go far. Ben Franklin wrote, he that is good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else. And a man named Gabriel Murier stated, he who excuses himself accuses himself. Moses seemed to specialize in excuses. I'm nobody special. What if they don't listen to me? I wouldn't know what to do or what to say. I'm just not really gifted. And then the final thing, he basically says, I just wish you would use somebody else. In verse 11 and 13 of chapter 3, verse 110 and 13 of chapter 4, we see those excuses. And countering each of those excuses is a promise from God. The way that God counters them is he promises something that focuses back on him, that takes the focus off of Moses, which is what each of those excuses is doing, is focusing on Moses instead of on God. And God counters those with the promise that puts the focus back on him. What is God saying to you? What is God calling you to do? How is he at work in your life? You might see his work in your life. You might look at what you have in your hands. You might say, no way. I can't do that. But here's the thing. It's not about you. And it's not about me. It's about the great I am. It's about God Almighty. It's about the one who is limitless. It's about the one who uses those who are inadequate and those who think they're not enough. And honestly, when I was in college, God used kind of the the story after the story in a lot of biblical characters to show me that the Bible is full of inadequate people that God uses. I used to I mean, I was a good kid. I, I grew up a good kid. I didn't do a lot of rebellious things. I didn't do a lot of that stuff. But I struggled with something that maybe a lot of you guys have struggled with at times, perfectionism. Having to live up to a certain model. And I would look at these people in the Bible and I would say, man, I want to do that. But I'm not like Abraham. I'm not like David. I'm not like Moses. I'm not like Paul. Can I just be really honest with you guys? Those people aren't who we thought they were when we were growing up a lot of times anyway. 
Peter denied Jesus three times, turned his back on his best friend. Paul and David both committed murder. David was an adulterer. Moses committed murder. Paul didn't, I'm sorry. Um, Moses and David both committed murder. Paul had a very, well, yeah, he did in a sense in the way he persecuted the Christians. They all had checkered past. They all had inadequacies. God takes those inadequate people and uses them anyway. He uses those who are not enough. A lot of times when we're making excuses for what God is wanting us to do, they sound great in our mind. They sound great as we think them up and let them out, but they're pulling the focus away from Him and onto us. I want to read a couple of other scriptures and then I'll come back to the second point. A couple of other passages that as I was working through this over the last few weeks came to mind as other examples that I could, could have used for the same, basically the same message. Luke 9, 57 through 62 says this, As they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, Foxes have dens, birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. Lord, he said, First let me go bury my father. But he told him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Is there anything wrong with those things that those people wanted to do? In and of themselves, not really. But they kept them from following God. Luke 14, 15 through 23, last summer when we started back after COVID shut youth group down, we went through parables through the summer and, and through the fall. And this was one that just really jumped at me in a way that maybe it never had before. Luke 14, 15 through 23 is the parable of the large banquet. <clears throat> it says, When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he told him a man was giving a large banquet and invited many people. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, Come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of, of oxen. I'm going to go try them out. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I just got married and therefore I'm unable to come. So the servant came back and reported these things to the master. In anger, the master of the house told the servant, go out quickly in the streets and alleys of the city. Bring in here the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame. Master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done and there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. Again, those things sound good. As I was reading through that when we were talking about it last fall, <clears throat> a number of things stuck out to me. First, for a banquet like that, that would not have been the first invitation. There would have been a previous invitation, kind of a save the date type thing, most likely. And so they knew this was coming. Secondly, each of those things that they said, let me go look at my field, let me go look at my oxen, I just got married, you could easily counter each of those. Who's going to buy a field without going and looking at it first? Who's going to buy oxen without going and checking them out first? And the man would have known that the other man got married and the wife would have been invited as well, most likely. Each of those things sounds good, and a lot of times for us, our excuses sound good as we're thinking them up and even as we're spouting them out. 
but they're pulling the focus off of God and putting the focus onto us. So our excuses can change the focus from God to me. Secondly, my excuses can keep me stuck in neutral. Can keep me stuck in neutral. Moses is called to a God. Speaking of stuck in neutral, that's how my car was the other day. So this means more to me today than it would have even as I was preparing this. I'm on the side of the road pushing down and it's going nowhere. So that point makes more sense to me today than it did when I first put this together, honestly. It's a frustrating place to be. Moses is called to a God-sized task, but he sees nothing special in himself or in what he has. Moses was, what was Moses' profession? Shepherd. That's a high-class, high-society job, right? No, it's the opposite. It was a very plain, very ordinary profession. And oh, by the way, I mentioned this earlier, he had killed a man. He wasn't very confident that he was a good speaker. He wasn't very confident in his own ability. All of these things could have kept him stuck in neutral. And they did, initially. In his eyes, he didn't see a lot of potential. In his eyes, he didn't see how God could possibly use someone like him. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard that over 23 years of ministry... I don't see how God can use someone like me from teenagers, from adults alike. I would be a wealthy man. He couldn't see how God could use someone like him, someone with a checkered past, someone plain and ordinary. All these things could have held him back. It doesn't matter what you've done or even where you are now. What matters is God is calling you out of your ordinariness, out of your boredom, out of your sin, out of your brokenness, and that he notices you and that he sees you and that he believes in you more than you could ever believe in yourself. Even when your past holds you back, even when you doubt yourself, even when you doubt what he's asking of you. When I started in ministry, I worked in college ministry my first year in ministry. I was fresh out of college, and I worked at Arkansas Tech Baptist Student Union, BCM is what they call it today. At the same time I was working there, there was a guy at my alma mater, Arkansas State, named Scott Pankey. Scott was the man. He could sing, he could dance, he could do um, drama, all of that kind of stuff. He was actually in, a, he's, he was actually in um, the John Travolta movie Face Off, if you've ever seen that movie. He was actually in the Dukes of Hazzard reunion movie. He is now a teacher in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and he has a viral version of him leading his students through uh, the song Uptown Funk, uh, one of those viral video type things where they're acting it all out, that the last time I looked had over 18 million views on it on YouTube. And when I first got into ministry, that's who I was comparing myself to. God, I don't know how I can do this because I'm not like Scott. I'm not as talented as him. I'm not as gifted as him. I don't have his singing ability, his drama ability, his this, his that. And God said, you know what? That's okay. I didn't call you to be the next Scott Pankey. I called you to be Alan Johnston and to take what you have and use it for my glory. And it changed everything for me in that first year of ministry. Because up to that point, I was comparing myself and I felt inadequate and I felt ordinary and I felt like I couldn't do what God was asking me to do. A lot of times, that's what holds us back, our fears our past, our inadequacies. They paralyze us. They keep us from doing things from God. A lot of times there's something in our past that we think, I can never move past this and never let God use me because of this in my past. 
Two years ago in Chicago, I took my youth group to meet with a man named John Kelly. John is the pastor of a church named, uh, called Chicago West Bible Church, and it's in one of the roughest neighborhoods of Chicago. We met with him, we heard his story, and I was blown away by it. And as I was preparing this, I was thinking about John, and I was thinking about his story. And so I texted him. I said, hey, I, I might share part of your story. Could you refresh me on it? And he sent me a link to a video where he shares a little bit of his story. And I'm going to ask Ben to play that now. When I grew up in the Fairmount section of Philadelphia, I lived literally one block from Eastern State Penitentiary. One of the things when I first started selling drugs when I was 12 was I had I had. I had crack cocaine placed in one hand to sell, and I had a 38 revolver handgun placed in the other hand. Think of that as a 12-year-old, but that's the environment you're in. The first time I ever got convicted of a crime, I was 13 and got two years probation. That was like my introduction to the criminal justice system was at 13, and it never changed from there. At the time, I, I would say I was ready to die, but I think even looking back, I thought I was ready to die, but I wasn't ready to die. I knew when I was a kid, I, I thought through as a teenager that, man, I might get killed, I might go to jail. But I never really processed sitting in prison when the district attorney is trying to give you life or the death penalty. And it was my first week when I was in prison, in solitary confinement, that a, a prison guard gave me a Bible to read, and that's how I came to faith in Christ. And it was, it was my faith in Christ that began to carry me through the rest of that experience. And I really believe that, like, you know, I'm reading and I'm like, you know, I'm a Christian now. And part of being a Christian is taking responsibility. And that's called repentance. It's taking ownership and going in the opposite direction. I'm asking God, man, get me out of this situation. But then I'm like, but you're guilty of this situation. I can't be praying to God, asking him to get me out of a situation that I'm pleading not guilty of, that I'm guilty of. So I talked to my lawyer and was like, hey, I'm a Christian now, I know this sounds crazy, but you could talk to the district attorney or I, I want to plead guilty. And that's what I did. And so I ended up, um, I was able to go to see some of the family of the young man who lost his life. And uh, honestly, it doesn't matter that he was a drug dealer. He was a young man creating the image of God who did not deserve to lose his life. And I was able to, to, to look in the eyes of the family of a victim and to have the family give you a second chance. Because when it was their opportunity to talk, they could have easily said, you know, that's great that you're a Christian now, but Your Honor, we want justice. You know, he's not coming back. They, 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 they gave me grace. And the judge did too. My salvation experience of, of God giving me a second chance and saving my soul that wasn't worthy and then going in front of the family of victims who gave me a second chance and forgave me and then going in front of the judge who was willing to give me um, six to 20 years instead of a life sentence, um, it really does something in you. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be the man I am today or anything that's going on. My, my, my kids wouldn't be born, you know, if, if I didn't get a second chance. My name is John Kelly, and I used to be known as a murderer, a drug dealer, a drug addict, a Mr. No Hope For Him, Mr. Don't Allow Him Near My Home, Mr. Let's Throw Him Away. There's nothing good that can come from that. And now I'm a pastor. I'm a college graduate. I am about to receive my master's. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a mentor, and I'm an advocate for second chances.
John was a part of a drug deal that went bad, and a man wound up dead. And he should have been, he should have been in prison for life. And he only served eight years, and God took his life and restored it. And he's an awesome, awesome guy. Often our past, our inadequacies, our inadequacies, our fears paralyze us. Sometimes our excuses just keep us in status quo. We're afraid to step out. We're afraid of misinterpreting God. We're afraid we're not quite ready for what God wants from us. So we continue to sputter along in our faith journey. We just kind of go through the motions. Or maybe we're just scared of attempting something and failing. The promise of God's purpose for us allows us to let go of our own plans and to receive God's plans without fear. And we need to accept that our future is not our own, that it's in His hands. Our inadequacies cause us to rely on Him. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. His glory is manifest through our flaws. So our excuses can keep us stuck in neutral. The third thing, my excuses can limit what God does through me. God is not limited. We limit through our doubts, through our excuses. Doubt puts us in good company. There's a lot of Bible people who use a lot of excuses. Moses said he was not a good speaker. Gideon said he was too young. Jeremiah said both of those things, that he was too young and couldn't speak. Sarah laughed God off because she thought she was too old. We do the same. I can't afford it. It's too hard. I don't know where to start. I don't think my parents will understand. I don't think my friends will approve. I don't have what it takes. What if I fail? I can't do that. It's not me. And on and on and on. We convince ourselves that these are reasonable things, that these are rational things, but they're simply excuses if God is calling us. He knows our desires. He knows our doubts. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our potential. He sees us as we are. He calls us as we are. He promises to guide us and shape us. He'll take our ordinary lives, transform them with his divine call, and do things that we can't even imagine. He wants all of who we are, and he'll use all of who we are. Flaws, inadequacies, and everything else. To be used by God, we have to submit our will to God's will. Moses considered the task before him, and he thought he didn't measure up. And left to his own devices, he was going to come up short. But God sees what he can do through us, and what he wants from us is obedience. And the power of God is amazing when we obey. He takes the ordinary, he takes the unexpected, he takes the inadequate and transforms it into something useful for his glory. It may seem demanding, it may seem beyond our capabilities, but if God is in it, he'll keep us going when we're ready to quit. Don't limit what God can do. Don't limit what God wants to do through your excuses, through your doubts why you can't do it, why you shouldn't be the one to do it. Often, like Moses, his final excuse was, God, please send someone else, or Jonah, who just didn't want people to get right with God. Often with us, it boils down to the simple fact that we don't want to do it or we want someone else to do it instead. And that's a shame. But it's honestly, it's how most believers live their lives. We want people to be reached, but we want someone else to do it. We want God to do incredible things, but we want someone else to be the hands and feet of God. Why do we do that? What do we miss out on when we let someone else do it, when we wish someone else would do it? There was a skit that I saw when I was in college that I've actually had done in youth ministry, and I had it done once before I preached several years ago by some of our adults in our youth ministry. And basically the the skit was called, Here Am I, Send Them. 
And it was, somebody would give their story, would step forward, there were five people in line, somebody would step forward, give their story, all these things they had going on, God, I want to do your will, here am I, send Tracy. And then that person would step forward and do the same thing, and then the final person would say, here am I, send me. But we tend to be like those first four people, here am I, send Rachel, here am I, send Greg, here am I, send Brett or Alan or Brady, the professionals, the ones who maybe we think have it together a little bit more than we do. We want to see change. We want to find people. We want people to find and experience Jesus and life change. Why do we want someone else to be the hands and feet? Why not let us be a part of that? Some of our students experience that in a way that they probably never have in Colorado this year. And you guys have heard me talk a little bit about it, but I had five different students be a part of leading seven different children to Christ on that mission trip. What if they had said, I would like to talk to him, but let me go get Alan, or let me go get Tracy, or let me do this, Johnny, whoever. They got to experience that because they answered the call of God in that moment, and they didn't make excuses for why they couldn't do it. So our excuses can limit what God does through us. I want to wrap this up by asking us a question. What do I need to let go of and surrender so that God can use me? What do I need to let go of and surrender so that God can use me? In Exodus 4.2, the Lord asked Noah, I mean, uh, Moses, what is that in your hand? What's in your hand? And he had to let go of what was in his hand to see the power of God displayed for him. In Matthew 19, a rich man was, made, was asked to let go of his wealth and his possessions in order to follow Jesus. What's in our hands that's getting in the way of what God wants to do? Are we willing to surrender it and lay it down before God? Maybe it's our time and our priorities. God, I want to do this, but what if this comes up? Or what if I don't have enough time? Maybe it's our reputation. God, I know you want, to sh- want me to share my faith with someone, but what if they don't understand it? What if they think I'm some freak weirdo? Sometimes we just have our hands so full of what's going on in life, and I'm as guilty as anybody else. If you saw my schedule, if you saw my calendar this summer, I'm as guilty as anybody else. Sometimes we have our hands so full of what we have going on in life, the things that consume us, the things that take up our time, that cause us to stay busy, that we miss the opportunities that God's laying in front of us. It can be jobs. It can be family. It can be hobbies, it can be responsibilities, it can be talents, it can be all these different things that aren't necessarily bad things. But when they become God things, they become idols in our lives. Am I willing to surrender what I have in my hands? Am I willing to let go of that, to allow him to use those things and use my life to serve him? Am I willing to lay down my will, my plans, my dreams, my desires, and submit to him? Or am I holding on to something and not trusting God? Moses had to lay down his livelihood, his profession, the object that aided him and protected him as he traveled to submit to God's will. Ask yourself today, what do I need to submit to God? What do I need to lay down before him so I can serve him the way he wants me to? Maybe God wants you to start a connect group. Maybe God wants you to be a part of one day in the fall. Maybe God wants you to be a part of a mission team. 
of VBS. I know we just had that, but the youth ministry, the kids ministry, the preschool ministry, the nursery. Are you willing to trust him and lay it down before him? Are you willing to allow him to transfer, transform the mundane and the ordinary and use it for his glory? Are you willing to be his instrument? Are you willing to be obedient before God? If not, why not? If not, what is holding you back? Why is it so hard to let go of? And what would happen if you did let go of it? What would happen if you did quit making excuses? What do you need to surrender to God?